Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Donald Trump has framed this election as a conflict between socialism and capitalism. Although Joe Biden is far from being a socialist, there is something to what Trump says. When I look at the problems facing us from the climate crisis, the threat of nuclear war, the pandemic and the deepening economic crisis, geopolitical conflict, the inequality, chasm, systemic racism, and in the U.S., the healthcare crisis. Every serious problem leads to a more socialistic solution. If Medicare for all makes sense, then why not public banking? If public banking makes sense, why not nationalize arms production and take the profit motive out of war? Nationalizing and phasing out the fossil fuel industry may be the only way to face up to the challenge of the climate crisis. So Trump and the right may be correct. Even though Biden is no socialist and represents sections of capital that hate socialism and the left as much as the Republicans do, in people's consciousness, if they see some public ownership policy working, they may demand more. And the elites fear where that might lead. But if we don't head towards at least a more socialistic approach towards climate, whether it's called that or not, we're headed into a world where much or most of the planet is unlivable. Now joining us to discuss these issues and the state of the people's movement in the U.S. is Megan Day. She's a staff writer at Jacobin, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and co-author of the book Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go from the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. Thanks for joining us, Megan. Thanks for having me, Paul. So be before we get into some of the questions you addressed in the book and, and looking at the state of the movement, uh, what's your take on where we're at in, in terms of the election campaign and, and both balancing this issue of uh, keeping a perspective of socialism in sight at the same time? I'm assuming you want to see Trump defeated, that the DSA I think has suggested or said people should vote to defeat Trump, which does mean voting for Biden, um, balancing these things. And, and what are you hearing uh, from, I don't know if you're in touch with any people organizing, especially in swing states, what's happening with the working class there? Uh, are you hearing any feedback from where uh, Sanders is campaigning? Well, first, I'll say that I appreciated your introduction. I think you're, I think you're correct. Um, I think that, uh, in large, you know, I mean, I think it would be wonderful if this were a, a direct referendum on socialism versus capitalism, but no such luck. Unfortunately, we have to settle for sort of an, an indirect referendum. Um, but I do think that, you know, right now it looks to me like Joe Biden is somewhat immaterial to the election, that this election is is actually just about Donald Trump and Donald Trump's leadership. And so the question that's facing the nation is, do we want to continue to have a President Trump or not? Um I see, I, like like many other people, it, it appears to me, and I'm afraid to say that it appears to me that Joe Biden uh, might win. Of course, we're all afraid to say that because we have you know post traumatic stress disorder from from the last time. Um, but it does seem like a lot of people who were drawn to Trump in 2016 were drawn because they liked the idea that he was an outsider, he was a novelty of sorts, um, and they figured that you know after decades of neoliberalism and advancing privatization and austerity, that their lives could only 
improve if a major change were implemented? Well, Hillary Clinton, obviously bearing the Clinton brand, uh, did not rep- represent change for a lot of people. And I think Donald Trump did in a, in a somewhat apolitical way. And obviously, four years later, um, there's been some time to assess whether or not the type of change that he brings is the type of change that's going to improve people's lives. And so hopefully, we're going to see some of those people peel away. And I think also, we uh, may see some people turn out just out of sheer, you know, d- distaste for, for Donald Trump. There was, uh, you know, low turnout in a lot of places, a lot of very important places for Hillary Clinton, uh, where her campaign was was betting on, on good turnout. Um, and a lot of that has to do with disillusionment and dissatisfaction, and also a sense of, of complacency, the idea that the pervasive idea that there was no way that Donald Trump, you know, given what a buffoon he was, could actually win the presidency. Well, I think the circumstances have changed. So hopefully, hopefully we'll see that translate into votes. As for a movement, you know, I, I don't think that we're seeing at present anything like the type of cohesive, politically coherent, bottom-up movement that you saw during the Bernie Sanders campaign during the primary. I don't think that Joe Biden and the Democrats have that. I don't think that they're capable of marshalling that. I think plenty of the people who were active in the Bernie Sanders campaign are, you know, throw, throwing uh, throwing their weight behind Joe Biden in one way or another. But you can't, you know, you can't sort of rely on people to come together with that kind of strength and intensity and commitment if you're not also um giving them something to to believe in. And, you know, Joe Biden's sort of accidental slogan is uh, what he told a room full of wealthy donors, nothing will fundamentally change. Um, And I think that a lot of people perceive that from his campaign. That doesn't mean that people don't back him. It doesn't mean that people aren't, you know, volunteering or phone banking for him. It doesn't mean that people won't plan to vote for him. It just means that the energy is not really there. To the extent that there is energy, it seems to be anti-Trump energy and not pro-Biden energy. Wasn't whether it was Bernie or others who were involved in the Bernie campaign, because it was it was clear this was needed. How come there was wasn't more organizational form given to what had become a national, very unifying campaign? Uh, once Bernie lost and endorsed Biden, why didn't that then move into something that became a, a sort of a, a national? I don't know what what you call it, popular front or something or another, but but something that gave it uh, some framing on the bones of what was there. I tend to think that the Bernie Sanders campaigns, both of them, have essentially functioned. They've served the function of of what a left party would look like if we had a left-wing party, right? So they were sort of ad hoc left parties, but there wasn't, all of the energy was going into getting Bernie Sanders elected. And so the energy wasn't going into making those organizational structures, to institutionalizing them for the long haul. Um, In order to understand why that didn't happen, first, you have to acknowledge that organization is very difficult and very painstaking. And second, you have to sort of reframe your thinking to concede that it's kind of miraculous that we were able to marshal that, that much organization on the left for, for the purpose of the Bernie Sanders campaign to begin with, given that we don't have left parties, we don't have left institutions that were relatively disorganized on the left in the United States. So it's kind of incredible. I would say, and we do say in the book, in Bigger Than Bernie, the book that I co-wrote with Micah Utrecht, 
that the Bernie Sanders campaign is perhaps the exact opposite, the reverse order of how we would have liked to go about things if socialists could sit down and draw up a blueprint for how we would have liked to proceed uh, to, you know, winning winning the highest office in the land for the name of under the name of democratic socialism. I think we would have, you know, started from the bottom and we would have painstakingly and deliberately built durable, long lasting institutions that would then root themselves in the broad uh, multiracial working class that would root themselves in workplaces and communities that would win electoral office, you know, starting from dog catcher all the way up and really sort of implant themselves in, in the ordinary lives of working class people and grow and build momentum to the point where we could run someone for president and it wouldn't be a complete anomaly or a fluke. Well, well, that's not what happened. Um, of course, we should be thankful for, you know, what did happen. I think that, you know, it gave us the opportunity to go about doing that hard work of building organizations. But we basically came into this with no organizations. I mean, Bernie Sanders thought, you know, somebody really ought to run against Hillary Clinton. Um, Otherwise, it's essentially a coronation and business as usual. And, you know, nobody else seems to be volunteering. He had asked Elizabeth Warren to give it a shot and she, she, she deferred. So, so he decided to do it himself. I don't, I think it took him by surprise that people were ready for that. Actually, I think it took him by surprise. And so there was an ad hoc attempt to build organization for both the first Bernie Sanders campaign and the second Bernie Sanders campaign. Now there have been some organizations that have come out of of that, um, one of which is the Democratic Socialists of America, which had six thousand ish members at the time that the first Bernie campaign uh, was announced, and uh, you know at present I think has seventy five thousand members. It's the largest socialist organization in the United States in over half a century, uh, to my knowledge. And you know, so we are seeing the beginnings of that kind of organization building in the United States on the left. But it wasn't there before, and it's not a surprise to me that it um, that its ad hoc form dissolved after the campaigns were over. I think, despite the best attempts of many people who understood that it would, it would be better if that didn't happen, there was sort of this attempt to start our revolution, which was a spinoff from the Sanders campaign. And I, I was that was that supposed to be the mechanism for broadening and yeah. keeping the campaign going? It was. It didn't accomplish it. Why? It didn't. It didn't. For one thing, again, I'll reiterate that organizations are very difficult. There's a certain magic to membership organizations that you can't really conjure out of thin air. And our revolution, for a variety of reasons that I won't go into, was just not able to actually uh, capture that. I mean, I think the Democratic Socialists of America has a little bit more energy at the membership level than something like our revolution does, which doesn't mean that our revolution hasn't been a, an excellent contribution politically, just that it's it's hard to predict and it's hard to, um, you know, it's hard to predict and it's also hard to uh, fashion out of thin air the kinds of membership-based enthusiasm that keeps organizations alive, that gives them a beating heart, that keeps them from being something other than a sort of um, a front organization or an NGO with supporters who call themselves members, right? So our revolution was uh, the ostensible attempt to do the correct thing, which was to try to build long-lasting organization out of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, unfortunately, I, I do think that there's a paradox when it comes to Bernie Sanders himself. We wrote about this in the book. So Bernie Sanders managed to... We, we like to think of Bernie as a kind of... Um, 
he's a holdover from the last time that we had an organized left in this country who happened to still be around, still be, uh, you know, not just alive, but, you know, politically active and had managed to, you know, build a lot of uh, political credibility and goodwill and to remain politically consistent such that he was in the right place at the right time when we had an, a second wind or another wind for the left in this country so he could provide it with electoral leadership. Well, the paradox is that what allowed him to be able to do that, to weather all of those decades without you know, losing his sort of political and, and moral commitment is precisely the fact that he's not a joiner. He was never really a joiner on the left. I mean, he had been an active in the Liberty Union Party in Vermont for a while in the 70s, but it was a somewhat short-lived experience. I think it was important for him, but um, it wasn't it, the overriding political experience of his life has not been as a member of an organization. It has been as an individual, Bernie Sanders. That's been actually really good for, for him for being able to keep, you sort of preserve him in amber until it was time, right, for him to provide electoral leadership. Unfortunately, I, I'm not sure that, uh, I think that's one of his weaknesses, I think organization building is something that he doesn't have decades of experience in. And I think our revolution perhaps would have fared better or in general, the, the attempts to, you know, to build some kind of long lasting organization coming out of the two Bernie Sanders campaigns would have fared better if he was of, of a different temperament or had a different, um, you know, organizational history, uh, an orientation toward organizations and so on. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Now that's, it's okay. I mean, we have to understand that we're started from almost nothing. And now we've got a lot of little glimmers of some things, which means that we're better off than where we were before. And if our revolution is not necessarily going to be the vehicle, I think, you know, DSA is pretty well poised um, to be, if not the vehicle, then certainly an important vehicle in the process of rebuilding left organizations and institutions in this country for the long haul. In the book, you write, we think that socialist organizations have a special role to play in building an independent working class movement and eventually a party. So it, it, it sounds like what you're saying, or maybe you actually do say, <laughs> not just sounds like, that DSA is kind of something for this stage, uh, not not like so, what's the word, maybe disciplined. It's not really a party that runs candidates, it backs candidates, if I understand it correctly. Uh, but you see the necessity to get to something that's that is a party and and has a more I guess the what more more strict organization is that the word more cohesive organization co co coherence yeah sort of co coherence and the ability of pro I think a programmatic mass party would be the kind of traditional lefty way to talk about it you know a party that could discipline its candidates that could run candidates on its own ballot line um, and that could you know punish candidates for stepping out of line for compromising with the enemy once they're in office and sort of um, uh, you know uh, turning 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 their backs on on the party you know these are the kinds of uh, features of a party that we would like to have uh, we, we don't have that. It's not just because the left doesn't have that. I mean, no, nobody has that. The right doesn't have that. The center doesn't have that. The Republican and Democratic parties are very decentralized. The, they're very incoherent compared to parties around the world. They don't, you know, they have conventions, which are essentially showcases. They don't have conferences where members come and decide what the program should be. And, you know, leaders try to put forward their, you know, vision and, and get members to get members buy in on it. And then that's the program and the, the people are disciplined to it and so on. Um, in fact, the Republican and Democratic parties don't even really have members in a traditional sense. You can be members of them, but it doesn't really confer on you much um, 
much in the way of being able to um, shape the direction of the, of the of the party as a whole. Of course, there are regional and state Democratic Party structures that you can be involved in shaping, but they won't have any bearing on the rest of the Democratic Party across the country. So this is just a, a this is just a vacuum in American politics. Um, there is an interesting article that will be coming out in Jacobin soon by a writer named Seth Ackerman that will try to explain why the the reason that this is the case is actually has to do with the way that the Constitution is written and the incredible federalism and decentralization of American politics in general. Our parties were shaped to that. They were shaped, they, were, they, they grew up around that. And so they're very diffuse and decentralized, right? So we don't have that uh, on the right, the center or the left. Eventually, we are going to have to build something like that on the left. We need to have an independent mass programmatic working class party, all of these old sort of Marxist terminologies from, from a distant era, but they, they remain relevant. I mean, that we can't, we can't advance the interests of a, an oppressed class without, you know, building a party that is specifically structured to do that because otherwise, um, you know, our politicians will simply be co-opted, right, by the interests of capital, and not just not just co-opted in terms of you know bribes have been dangled in front of them, but just by the sheer fact that you know the capitalist class has the ability to punish lawmakers for contravening their interests. They can disinvest, they can tank the economy, and so there's a structural incentive to uh, to to stay in line with them. And so we need to build an independent working class party in order to be able to um, build a countervailing force strong enough to overcome that. Now, we're not close to that. I think that's the point that Mike and I are trying to make in the book is like, we're trying to be realistic here. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen the next day. We need a strategy to get us from A to B. And that's where we sort of proposed the idea. Uh, actually, I should clarify, this is not our idea. We tried to flesh it out. But in, in DSA circles, you'll hear about this thing called the dirty brick. This is the, this is the strategy that people want to pursue, which is to use the Democratic Party ballot line to build up consciousness, build up political organization, and build up our forces to make it possible to break with the Democratic Party in a way that isn't completely self-sabotaging and rendering us completely politically irrelevant. And when you say use the Democratic Party ballot line, you're saying run progressive candidates from within the Democratic Party, like an AOC kind of candidacy. That's right. Yeah. I mean, AOC herself doesn't tend to talk all the, you know, she doesn't talk about the need for an independent working class party. Sometimes she'll say things that hint at it. Like when she said once that, um, you know, if, if this were a different country than her and Joe Biden wouldn't be in the same party. So you sort of get the sense that perhaps she understands this on some level, but she doesn't, um, you know, stand up there and, and orate about the need for an independent working class party that splits from the Democrats. So it, is she an adherent to the dirty break strategy? Maybe not personally, it's hard to say. Um, but what she's doing is very much in line with with our strategy. The idea is to run, we should run our own candidates. They should be open democratic socialists. They should have the, the nuts and bolts of our agenda, which right now, you know, looks like, you know, Green New Deal, Medicare for all, tuition-free college, you know, um, strengthening unions and, um, you know, raising the minimum wage. Um, these are all the kinds of things that we think are necessary for our candidates to be running on. And they would call them themselves democratic socialists, but if they have a D next to their name, so be it. We need to get them into office. We need to get buy-in from people. We need to not estrange people. Now, there are some districts and some races where it's going to be possible to run as independents, and we should absolutely do that if that's the case. But we should also be intelligent about what our prospects are, which means that sometimes we're going to be running on the Democratic Party ballot line. The point is that we need to be building class consciousness. We need to be promoting our program. We need to be giving our activists the opportunity 
opportunity to build organization in the process of running campaigns. We need to be building a bench of elected officials who share our values and are willing to promote our politics. And so a lot of leftists have, you know, shrunk from the Democratic Party. They won't touch it with a 10 foot pole. And it's completely understandable. I wouldn't argue with a single reason why they have such disdain for the Democratic Party. I would mostly share every single one of them. However, the question is one of strategy. And uh, we need to be making moves. We need to be making advances right now. And that means that we're what AOC is doing is great. I think for that, and and we have plenty of others too. in in New York In New York, for example, five members of the Democratic Socialists of America are headed to Albany to join a sixth there. Uh, you know, we're building we're building a bench of of DSA members. Uh, same as in in Chicago, we have six members of the Chicago City Council are DSA members. Um, so so we're starting to put this strategy into action. Of course, we we have to learn as we go along what the sort of possibilities and constraints of it are. At the height of the Sanders campaign, when it looked like he might he might win, until all the sort of corporate Democratic candidates banded together behind Biden and and uh, stopped him in South Carolina. It was South Carolina, not North, right? That's right. At that point, one could envision going to a convention. Uh, where uh, uh, even a majority of delegates or close to a majority were pro-Sanders. It gave a picture, I think, of what how the fight might unfold in the Democratic Party, that if the forces within the party, the really left progressive forces, gain enough strength, it probably breaks the party. It probably splits the party. I don't think the corporate Democrats are ever going to live with uh, the progressives taking over the Democratic Party. It's one way or another, they would use some mechanism to stop it. Uh, and, and maybe if the Republican Party's in complete disarray after this election and start looking, looking like it, that will be the case, um, maybe in 2024, we start to actually see that. I don't know whether it's Bernie or whether it's AOC or someone else emerges, but is that the way you think that this new party might develop? Because it's, I don't think it can just be created out of on the ground organizing in, in some evolutionary gradual way, partly because there's just no time for it, given the climate situation crisis and, and where there really has been traction has been in the Sanders type of candidacies. So, I mean, what do you think? Is 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 that sort of how this Nick, how a uh, people's party emerges? I think that that's right. So my con- my contention would be that we're more likely to get an independent uh, left wing pro worker party by going toe to toe inside of the Democratic Party and building up a devoted constituency that can see plain as day what the two sides are and suddenly develops the consciousness and as a sense of you know commitment to one of those sides our side i mean that's how we're going to get millions of people on our side not by going off and starting our own thing and planting our flag and saying hey if you like this come over here even though nobody's over here yet right so so i think that picking fights within the democratic party is is more likely to produce the result that that we want than um, you know simply like making what we would call a clean break as the, as opposed to a dirty break and leaving right now to develop an independent party and i also think it's more likely that um, we're going to get what we want by picking fights in the democratic party and building a constituency that way um, and inviting the pushback from the capitalist elements of the Democratic Party, I think it's more likely that's going to happen than that, you know, the capitalist elements will simply um, 
slink away once they see that we're starting to become more popular. So I also don't necessarily believe in the gradualist approach to taking over the Democratic Party. I mean, I think that it's going to be through struggle and it may at some point be cataclysmic. I I, I have a hard time predicting what that's going to look like. But I think uh, that it's not just going to be, well, we're going to we're going to wage a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party and then somehow we're going to win it. I mean, I think that probably it's going to be a bitter, bloody and open battle between the different elements of the Democratic Party party. And that's probably how we're going to be able to convince people that they need to, you know, enter into a new type of formation, formation, whether within the Democratic Party, or within and then leading outside of the Democratic Party. Um, So there are a lot of different scenarios that we can entertain. Obviously, I don't have a crystal ball, but we tried to go into this in the book, we have a section in the book on, on the dirty break, uh, and on the sort of socialist strategy, the democratic road to socialism is the is the uh, basic calling card of of that strategy. So I would recommend that people read about it if they want to hear more about what we think is is likely. One thing I don't think is likely is that the capitalist class is going to abandon one of its two major political assets in the world, the the Democratic Party. Obviously, I mean, you may have you may have heard this pithy quote from, I believe it was one of Reagan's speechwriters or or advisors who who called the Democratic Party uh, history's second most enthusiastic party of capital. Well, I think the capitalist class is a bit too intelligent and self interested to simply get their feelings hurt by the rise of someone like Sanders or AOC by that wing of the party and sort of say, well, fine, you can you can have it. No, I think that they're more intelligent than that. I think they probably want to keep a hold of the Democratic Party. So I'd imagine that this the road to the road to um, the road to what we want is going to run through open conflict, I believe. Yeah, I think you're right. You wrote the Democratic Party is a fundamentally pro-capitalist institution, uh, which is another way of saying the soul of the Democratic Party is fundamentally a pro-capitalist soul. These people that talk about the Democratic Party going back to its roots and going back to being a workers party and all this. I mean, it never was such a thing, even if FDR represented a a more, I don't know if you want to call it socially conscious or saw the necessity of a compromise with with the working class in the United States and uh, a more rational approach, if you want, to a more mitigated capitalism. It was never anything but a pro-capitalist party. Um, But do you see the need for because uh, I, I do, and this is what I hope would sort of come out of the Sanders candidacy, uh, is, is, a, is an organization that's like a popular front, which is within, within it has a DSA and uh, may, you know, maybe the DSA or something of the DSA is kind of at the core. But doesn't there need to be something very broad that includes people that wouldn't call themselves socialists? But see the necessity for a rational approach to climate, a rational approach on inequality, and so on. And when I say rational, I mean effective, something that actually will work. Yeah, I think that this is something that the movement is trying to figure out in real time. So during the Bernie Sanders campaign, there were, I think I mentioned this when I came on your podcast last, that there were five, um, I believe five organizations, DSA being one of them, Sunrise Movement was another one of them. Let's see if I can remember all of them. Uh, Mi Gente, which is an immigrant rights organization, Stream Defenders, which is a Black Lives Matter, criminal justice uh, and racial justice organization. And um, the last one, I I don't think it was Justice Democrats. I can't remember all of them, but you're starting, starting to get the picture, right? All, all of the other groups, I would say, are more pro- 
progressive, I would say that they probably are more, you could to classify them or typify them as progressive rather than democratic socialist organizations. And DSA, in the context of the Bernie Sanders campaign, built um, connections with these groups uh, in, in order to act in concert. You may remember when uh, I think it was Pete Buttigieg s- suggested on the, the debate stage that Bernie Sanders was actually funded by secret super PACs. He was referring to this constellation of of progressive organizations and one socialist organization who had banded together to try to get him elected. Um, So that was a sign that these groups are capable of coming together in what I would say is more more popular front type formation. Um, There are deliberations happening as I speak about what to do about the the upcoming election, I can't really speak on them because uh, they're happening, you know, at the level of our elected representatives inside of DSA. Um, and you know, whatever whatever happens, it's not going to contravene the decision that the membership made at last year's convention to not officially endorse Joe Biden. Um, there are various sort of workarounds that people are proposing, anti-Trump things like that. Um, you know, building coalitions for for anti-Trump and so on. Um, so. So people are trying to figure out this stuff in real time. Uh, It's very difficult because the politics of these organizations demand, um, on the one hand, that we be, um, you know, friendly, approachable and um, open to coalitions with people who disagree with us. And on the other hand, demand that, you know, the largest socialist organization in the United States in over half a century, not liquidate its political identity just because the, the it's feeling some, you know, fire under its ass, right? So, so we need to make sure that we are standing for what the membership joined the organization for, what the sort of um, the, the uh, explicit stated political beliefs uh, of the organization are and so on, which is going to obviously mean, you know, not can't not openly campaigning for a Joe Biden presidency, even if many members, and I would say a lot of members of DSA plan to vote for Joe Biden, and many of them even plan to volunteer for for Joe Biden. Um, So we're working this out in real time. Um, I think that if we will fare better on this question if there is a Joe Biden presidency, because it will give us the opportunity to identify who on the very broad left has the same set of values with regards to placing pressure on the Joe Biden administration and to try to build a popular front with with those people. It's very difficult under a Trump presidency because everyone from the left, from the very, very center, what, what would globally be called the center right, all the way to the far, far left, you know, despises Donald Trump. And so it's hard to sort of distinguish and to build a, a shared program and find your allies. So I think we're all hoping for a, you know, a Joe Biden presidency for, for that reason, among others. And, and um, yes, but I agree with you that coalitions are really critical. Yeah, I've been using the phrase because I get flack on uh, in the comments section on the different podcasts. You know, why are you sounding like you want people to vote for Biden? And the phrase I've been using is we should choose our field of battle. And Biden's simply a better field of battle than what would come from Trump, which would be, I think, an outright uh, repression that maybe we haven't seen, certainly since the House of Un-American Activities Committee and McCarthy. And, and I think it would be worse than, even than that. The, uh, but that being said, the uh, Democratic Party, let's assume Biden does win. I think there's going to be some shenanigans along the way from Trump and so on. Uh, the, the the it's kind of a paradox to use the word again. While there needs to be struggle in the party against corporate Democrats and a fight 
to push, you know, actual progressive policies rather than smoke and mirror policies that sound uh, effective, but in fact aren't. On the other hand, there's going to have to be some alliances with some sections of the elites that get the threat of climate. Even if they don't get anything else, they do see that there needs to be real real climate uh, policy. We, I went. I interviewed Bob Polin a while ago, the, uh, the progressive economist, and we were looking at uh, Biden's website and his climate plan. And the, the, it, it all comes down to carbon capture. The, the, the whole plan is based on the idea that these targets uh, that they've set f- for getting carbon neutral are going to be achieved through uh, carbon capture. And right now, carbon capture is a, a, quite an unproven technology. There's nothing in the plan for phasing out uh, fossil fuel. Uh, other, in fact, if you read the plan, on the face of it, fossil fuel stays around because carbon capture works and you don't have to worry about phasing it out. So there's got to be people in the elites that get that that doesn't work and that the threat is real. And there's going to have to be alliances with sections of the elites. And and frankly, given the, the time frame of the climate crisis, which is, you know, you know, they're saying less than a decade not to hit 1.5 degrees warming. Well, we're, we are going to hit 1.5. Uh, we're probably talking a decade or a decade and a half uh, not to hit two, never mind 1.5. So, so we're at a very critical point already. And frankly, the, the people's movement, the workers' movement, it ain't strong enough to do something that effective in that time frame, which means some sections of the elites have to be brought into some kind of an alliance to get real about climate instead of the BS that that we're hearing. At the same time, this fight's taking place in the Democratic Party where some of these sections are sections of the elites that might fight on climate are, are located. And I'll give you one very specific issue that I think we all have to think about. Uh, I uh, asked Tom Ferguson, you know, who does a lot of work on politics and money and so on. I, I said, and he knows a lot of people on Wall Street. I said, if you, if the elites, the financial elites, had a choice between a Sanders or say even a Warren or a Trump, and Trump, you know, they understand Trump represents a fascistization of the American state and, and, and culture. Um, who would they pick? And his answer was, well, if the wealth tax is still on the table with Warren and Sanders, they're going with Trump. They'll go with fascism. And I I, I think we're going to have to take that seriously in the sense that some of the demands which need to be made and and the socialist perspective can't be given up on. I take your point about DSA shouldn't just become some amorphous front. Uh, and in fact, even even more overtly socialist, and certainly not less. But there's got to be some way, and and strategically to make some of these decisions, where there may have to be real compromises with certain sections of the elites to get them to back real climate policy. Yeah, I think climate policy is unique in the sense that it has this sort of like ticking clock to it. Um, I am also persuaded by the alternative idea that because I mean, I take your point that the workers' movement is not strong enough to pull it off. <laughs> at the moment. But I I also think that 
you know, let, let me put it this way. It seemed that after the Berlin Wall fell and Francis Fukuyama announced that, that you know, the history is over, we've reached the end of history. Well, it feels to me that history has come roaring back to life in the last five years and that things are bound to change very quickly. And so I don't think that we can write off the possibility that the workers' movement is about to lurch into action if we actually make a concerted effort to build it. Um, it does seem like there is a, you know, it's, starting in 2011, there's just been an incredible appetite for for change on on the the level of the working class in the United States, it competes with a deep pervasive demoralization and demobilization, as well as outright repression of working class political activity. Um, but things change quickly. History happens quickly, and the best possible scenario, and the one that we should keep an, an, the door open to, is that we are able to force real climate action through the use of the best tool that, you know, people who believe in equality and justice and humanity have always had at our disposal, which is the ability to, um, lake the ability to get our hands on the thing that the elites care about the most. The thing that the elites care about more than anything else is profits. Well, profits are actually for the most part generated by labor. And labor is done by people, people with minds and hearts, people who can be appealed to, which means that people can stop producing labor, they can withhold their labor, and that can hold hostage profits, which can extract concessions from the ruling class. This is the best possible way for us to go about actually forcing real action on climate. The question is whether or not we think that we are poised to be able to do that within the time frame that is necessary. You mean you're, ta- you're talking about strikes. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm talking about strikes. I, I somehow managed to not say the word strike during, <laughs> during that. Yes. I'm talking about strikes. I thought, I thought perhaps I had said it. Yes. No, I'm talking about strikes. I'm talking about being able to build, you know, working class power and consciousness to the point where people can actually withhold their labor in order to, they can go on strike and say, we're not going back to work. We're not giving your profits. The only thing you care about until you take us seriously. I think this is a really important point because I think there's a, a serious underestimation of the potential power of unionized workers in the United States because it's always being talked about, oh, unions are getting so weak and the amount of workers and unions has gone down. They call it what a union density. But the thing is, is where workers are organized is very strategic. It's in in transportation. It's in tech. It's in government. Uh, And that one-day strike a few months ago, when the uh, longshoremen on the West Coast closed down all the ports for a day in support of Black Lives Matter, which he sent, you know, a political one day strike. Uh, it, it's a real vision of what, what could be possible. There's no question that un- union density is dismal compared to its peak in the United States, which was never high enough. You know, I think the peak peak union density in the United States has probably been 30 percent a little over maybe 33% in in the 1950s we're at 10% now 10 is bad that's bad we should feel we should feel concerned that it's at 10 but we should also understand that 30% was enough to dramatically change. I mean, it wasn't enough to re- replace capitalism with socialism, but it was enough to dramatically change the landscape. It yielded the sort of, um, I guess you would say the the great compression of of the mid 20th century, which is when the, the you know, there were high marginal tax rates and uh, there was a decent standard of living for most working class people, at least compared to, you know, um, sort of periods before and after. Um, and between 10 and 30, uh, 10% union density and 30% union density is just um, 
it, there's not that much standing in the way of it. Um, if that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It just means that it, it is completely possible for us to actually build, build union density back up. It just requires a movement that takes that task seriously. Um, and I think that we are seeing the emergence of such a movement. I mean, I think that starting in 2011, I mean, I think essentially in the 2008 crisis was represented the um, end of the suspension of disbelief in neoliberalism's promises. You know what I mean? Like people sort of started to not believe the um, um, the very seductive uh, fantasies that they had been told about how if, if you simply um, relent, if you if you stop resisting, if you sort of abandon politics, then there will be shared prosperity. That the march, the inexorable march of capitalist dominance, actually also represents a march into a future of shared prosperity. I just think that that stopped making sense to people in two thousand eight, and I think that in two thousand eleven, you started to see people agitating, not, I would say, in ways that were particularly strategic, but in ways that indicated that there was a deep well of feeling that we could tap into. Well, if we're successful, and obviously, you know, you go on, you have the Black Lives Matter, and you have the two Sanders campaigns, you have the teacher strike wave of 2018, the largest strike wave in 40 years in the United States, it seems that we do potentially have the raw material to be able to mount a new offensive for our side that could rebuild union density back up to the point where it would make sense um, for us to be relying on organized labor instead of relying on sections of the capitalist elite to get what we want. Now, I can't say with great certainty that we're going to be able to achieve this in the amount of time that it ta- that, it, that is necessary for us to um, to address climate change. Uh, but I do think it's important for us to hold out the possibility and not throw in the towel too early. Yeah, I think there's got to be a parallel strategy here. Uh, you're right. You never know. These moments come and all of a sudden a mass movement emerges. And maybe we're on the verge of one because of the pandemic, the depression, the deepening unemployment that's coming. You know, people said in the 20s that this is after after a great explosion of um, labor activity in the 1910s, much of which was actually not unionized and which gave rise to, to um, organized labor. Um, the 20s were a, a tough period for unions. They thought, well, we had a nice, nice upsurge, and it seems like we set up a lot of these institutions, but things seem pretty quiet, and they don't seem to be going in our favor. I mean, this was with the Roaring Twenties for the capitalist class, but it wasn't great for organized labor. The Depression happened. Um, you know, I won't go into the entire. I won't. I won't tell you the whole history. I'm sure you you know it yourself. Um, but but by, by, by the time the 1930s and the 1940s rolled around, it was like you know there were there were massive sit down strikes. There was incredible union militancy. I mean, these things kind of changed on a dime, and a lot of it had to do with the combination of objective macro political economic uh, trends, which nobody has any control over and people really can't quite foresee, at least not, um, you know, with great precision. And the combination of that and having true believers who were committed to holding open the possibility that something like that could happen, who were painstakingly trying to build organizations, even in the dark times, even in the bleak times, in the hopes that they would be vessels that could spring into action, that could be vehicles for working class militancy and struggle if the conditions were right for it. And eventually they were right for it. Now, again, not right enough to replace capitalism with socialism, but I think these things can, our fortunes can change quickly. And so we need to be we need to be behaving as though they might so that we can take advantage of them if they do. 
And people shouldn't be disappointed, especially in the United States, that this doesn't right away or even in short term, medium term, become, quote unquote, socialism. I can't forget being the United States is the empire and the heart of the empire. Some of the things that might be possible in other countries aren't going to be possible for, for no other reason that the American elites have an endless amounts of resources to throw money at the working class in the United States, if it's necessary. And you can see it from the pandemic. All of a sudden, they have trillions of dollars. And I know most of it went to the elites, but a lot of it did go to payments to workers. And if there's a Biden administration, they will provide more, some kind of funding. And if the situation gets really uh, sharp politically for them, they'll find ways to throw resources at it. So, I, I mean, Americans have to be realistic about what, what can be done. And it's especially, and I don't want to get into this right now, it's a, another conversation, but especially uh, there should be more focus on mitigating U.S. foreign policy. And, and I, it's a, it should be a real priority for the American progressive movement. And, and it doesn't get talked about, generally speaking, enough. But but. I know, we only have a little bit of time left, and I want to do raise one other issue sure, with yeah. you, uh, which is in the book, you, you talk about you being radically transformed by the Sanders campaign. The one, Megan became a socialist during the Sanders campaign. Uh, so how, how did how did all this evolve for you? Well, I think that I had existed sort of on the on the broad left for about a decade before Bernie Sanders's first campaign. Um, but I just I, did, I didn't. I understood what socialism was, and I was fairly certain that, um, you know, morally and ethically, I was on the side of, of socialism, abstractly speaking. But I just had never, I had never been asked directly the pointed question: "Are you a socialist?" Because I didn't know that, you know. Well, had you encountered Marx and, and Engels and stuff? Oh, I mean, barely, barely. I, I, I had a, I had a, I had a political education that was, um, you could say, post-Marxist. I mean, I went to like a, I went to like an expensive liberal arts college where we were. I think most of the time when I encountered Marx, it was mostly in the context of um, reading theory that was post-Marxist that was sort of had moved on from the old left, you know, sort of was, was inspired by, by instead by the new left. Um, and so, no, I mean, I hadn't really, um, I, I think that what happened for me in the, in 2015 was that a sort of latent understanding that was already there. And I, I will say with, you know, uh, to be entirely transparent, I didn't grow up in a working class household. I grew up in a relatively wealthy household for me, actually, that, brought into um it, it brought into great relief the, ex the the extent to it into sharp relief the extent to which class and um capital uh, shape the opportunities that are available to an individual person in the world and so this seemed quite obvious to me um based on my own experience and um when occupy wall street happened i remember thinking the 99 percent and the one percent is a great framing i think that it's it's pretty excellent it pretty much cuts to the to the point and and when bernie sanders you know started talking about democratic socialism it it just tapped into something that was already there, an awareness or an understanding that was already there, that the dividing line in society between people who own capital and own the what I later learned were called means of production and those who don't, who have to sell their labor to those people in order for a wage, in order to buy the basic necessities that they need to sustain themselves in order to survive, that that is a, an axis on which much of society hinges. And it's an axis on which our strategy for achieving a better world should also hinge, which led me very quickly down the road of, you know, reading everything I possibly could about socialism, you know, reading, um, you know, reading primary sources, reading Marx and Engels, but also reading lots 
lots of secondary sources and learning about the history of socialist struggle and working class struggle. And a lot of that was done in the context of the Democratic Socialists of America. I was a part of that first wave of people who joined DSA right after Bernie's primary was over. I think I joined like a month before the general election in 2016 because I had seen enough. I had seen enough and I had read enough, even just in the space of a few months in the first Bernie Sanders campaign to know that if there was a socialist organization out there, I should probably be a part of it because whatever whatever Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party donors were pushing back on that Bernie Sanders was offering needed to be augmented for the long haul and needed to not be restricted to one person, Bernie Sanders. It felt I felt very much ignited, like I wanted to be a part of the socialist movement. So I went and I sought it out and I found DSA and I did a lot of political education in DSA. And, and so that's the sort of general story of how, how I got involved in DSA. Now, my story is not the same as every other person in DSA is for one thing that's different is that a lot of people in DSA don't come from wealthy class backgrounds like me. I, I don't think that people come from poor class backgrounds either. A lot of times we joke that uh, uh, in DSA, we we have a lot of downwardly mobile middle-class millennials. Um, I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of. I think it's actually, um, it's that's the section of the working class who's, who's you know, becoming turned on to socialism right now. And um, every, every revolution in history uh, has seen one section of the working class or another lead the charge for reasons that are sort of beyond uh, people's choosing and in many cases beyond their comprehension. And so in DSA, I think that's the primary demographic, though I do believe the organization is rooting itself more and more in the working class through concerted effort. Okay, well, I know you don't like talking about yourself a lot, uh, but I'm going to try to get you to do it again and a little more <laughs> in another podcast, but sure. we're kind of out of time now. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, but I I actually think it's important, though. Like, I've done this series called Reality Asserts Itself, and I've done many interviews with all kinds of people. And a lot of these interviews are about people's political evolution, uh, and and especially breaking from the kind of uh, people that did grow up in families that were often like Larry Wilkerson, for example, or uh, Ambassador Joe Wilson, you know, that grew up in kind of conservative Americana families, grew up believing in the Cold War uh, in that generation, and then broke with it. And I, I think it's a very important thing for people to understand the process because, you know, we all grow up. In, in, with a, a set of preconceived notions that come from our families and schools and the culture. And breaking with that is, is a critical uh, part of a process of, I think, seeing the world as it is. Um, and it's also a very important part of the process of the uh, what, of what I think this pandemic's doing, uh, which is it's creating a moment where, re, uh, to use the name of my show, reality is asserting itself. And there's this great phrase, and I, I don't know who coined it, but I always thought it was, was so good. Uh, it's at certain moments of history, people lose their ideological moorings. And we're in that moment. A lot of people are losing their ideological moorings. And, and the the easy answers, the comfortable answers that came from the status quo political culture are all shattering. And it's at these kinds of moments you've had, one, the rise of the important religious movements, uh, you know, including Christianity, uh, but also the rise of fascism or the May, the rise of a really progressive movement. So it, it, we're, we're at such a critical moment. I think it helps for people to hear the stories of people that have broken with this the way they were brought up. 
And because uh, so many people are are asking these questions and going through this process right now. Sure. And I, I guess I will say something to this effect. I think this is an interesting topic of conversation. I'd be glad to come back on and talk about it in greater depth. But I think there's a sort of when people first become socialists, I've noticed, and many people are becoming socialists for the first time right now in the United States. So you get to see this happen in real time. Um, I think there is a, um, a sense in which people assume that uh, socialism is the natural ideology of the working class. And all we have to do is clear the obstacles for people to be able to um, access it, right? But insofar as I was raised in a non-working class household, like I had to do a great deal of um, ideological dismantling in order to get to the point where I was convinced of socialism and of, of the necessity for a, a socialist and working class movement. But it's also true that working class people, I think, also have to do that kind of dismantling because um, whatever sort of ideologies uh, I had been privy to, there are there are inverse ideologies that are, you know, um, in which the working class is steeped. And these are de- demoralizing and demobilizing ideologies that also need to be cast off. And so nobody is sort of automatically a candidate for socialism. Um, socialism, of course, describes the movement of the working class, but um, I, political ide- ideology does not flow automatically from class location. There's a process of class consciousness that has to uh, be undergone, and that involves, like you said, I like this, I like this way of thinking about it, um, sort of beca- becoming ideologically unmoored. Um, which, of course, macro political um, circumstances are very good at doing. And I think you might be right that we're in one such moment. Hopefully, many working class people um, become unmoored in. A, in a way that makes them primed for socialism. And hopefully many socialists are doing a good enough job reaching those people that we can actually see some people come to come to our ideology instead. Yeah, I mean, how many workers volunteer to go fight in wars where they sacrifice their lives to defend the society we've been describing, this unequal society. So no doubt it isn't. Uh, the working class doesn't naturally go in this direction when all the uh, instruments of culture and and I, uh, schooling and movies and everything else are so weighted the other way. Anyway, let's do it again. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Paul. I really, I really appreciate it. And I'm happy to come back on whenever. Great. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the page uh, on the website if you're listening on one of the many podcast platforms. Uh, I don't think there's any way to donate on those platforms, so you got to come on over to the website to do it. Uh, but thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.